directories. Uh, and if you can't afford a big book, let me know. Uh, we'll make sure you leave uh, today with one. All right, thank you. Okay, now I'm going to share for 10 minutes. <laughs> um, okay, so my name is Rachel. I'm alcoholic. Um, let's see. Um, so I started... I started um, drinking probably at 14 um, and been doing it ever since. Um, 34, mostly 35 now. So, um, um, let's see. Um, of course, you know, as a teenager, it started out as a social thing, um, uh, just being comfortable in your skin, uh, going to parties, you know, the whole, the whole world of that. Um, then it turned into, um, other things. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, so did that for a while. Um, um, I've always been in really toxic, toxic relationships. That's gotten me um, way too ahead of myself. Um, let's see, I uh, really had no time to think about this, so <laughs> I'm really just going off. Um, trying to replay my whole life right now. Um, but um, so drink all the way through high school, um, continue drinking until it led to drugs. Um, that's a big part of my story. Um, don't know how much of that I'm allowed to share. So, <laughs> um, so let's see, I met my ex-husband in 2012, extremely toxic relationship, um, narcissist, um, was abused for good five, six years of our relationship, had four kids. Um, my kids went to their fathers. One of half of my kids are from another person. Um, they would go to their grandparents' house and tell them about things that were going on. Um, lost my kids in um, 2017. So 2017, I was trying to get my kids back while I was still with this crazy person and um, took me over a year and a half to get all four of my kids back. Um, he finally went to jail. I was able to um, to um, speak out about the violence and um, all the problems that I had. Um, took years of counseling and um, never, did, never did AA or NA or none of that stuff. Um, I never spoke up about the, the drug or alcohol use ever. Um, I never thought that was a problem, still, after everything. Um, yeah, um, let's see. So I get my kids back in 2019. And um, then I think I'm sober because I'm not on drugs. So I um, continue drinking from the moment that I wake up until the moment I go to sleep. And um, pretty much cry myself to sleep every night um, over everything that's happened. Um, had so much guilt and um, just shame for everything that I've, I, I did to my kids, everything I put my kids through. I mean, it was a living hell. 
Um, I, I can't even emphasize like what it was like living with my husband at the time. Um, he was crazy. Um, but yeah, anyways, um, so let's see. Oh, and then also while I'm, I'm sober, I'm drinking and I'm taking, um, antidepressants, Xanax, um, sober. Yeah. And, um, and taking, uh, Spox and like candy pretty much like, I don't know, five, six, eight a day. Um, that was my sobriety. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. Um, what do I do after that? Okay. Then, um, so I stopped taking Spoxins and I, uh, instantly go back to heroin. Um, just got my whole life together and, um, got an apartment. Finally, we got to my mom's house again, got all the kids situated. Then I meet the dealer. <laughs> yeah. So that lasted until 2023 when I went to rehab. Um, um, I got stuck on fentanyl. Yeah. And, um, that one, I didn't know how to get off of on my own. I couldn't just take Suboxone or, or whatever. Um, so, um, my family, everybody around me was dying. Um, oh, and the reason too, for the fentanyl was I lost my brother in 20, um, July 22nd, 2022. Um, and that he was like my best friend. So yeah, I don't want to talk about that. But um, so that that really threw me over the edge. Um, losing him, not having him, because he's like understood me like a book, man. Um. Uh. So yeah, I got addicted to fentanyl. I pretty much just gave up on um, life. And um. I mean, I didn't even take my kids to school for a whole year. I was like so out of my body. I don't know. I was just dead. Um, uh, my, I finally spoke up to my family about it because like, I just kept going in this vicious cycle of, um, you know, rinse, dry, repeat. Um, so my family finally figured out that I was using that and, um, they got scared because, you know, everybody around us was dying from it. And, um, they started looking up rehabs for me and thank God, I don't know. I have no, that's the only, my only answer is um, my mom found a rehab for me. I went to a 10 day detox, um, went through hell for those 10 days. Um, then I got, I got out, went back to home and was really motivated to do all this NA, NA, AA, all this stuff. Um, took me a, month and a half before I had the courage to ask Lexi to be my sponsor. <laughs> yeah. And, um, that was like one of the, it was a really big milestone for me though, because I don't like speaking out <laughs> at all. So, um, yeah, but just staying in close contact with everybody, you know, that I I've met in, um, in the, you know, the program and, um, and just reaching out because um, I've never had friends. I've always had a boyfriend, a spouse, husband, whatever, and um, wasn't allowed to have friends. And anyways, if I did, I never trusted them. So they weren't really friends, um, but it, it makes a huge difference in your life um, to be connected with people 
and um, the church and just, I don't know, just positive, um, doing things positive. It's different. I'm not used to it. <laughs> but um, um, yeah, how much time do I have? Because <laughs> I'm about done. <laughs> Does anybody know how much time I have? Okay. So that's about it on my life. How's recovery? Oh, recovery. Okay. What happened when you went in to the group? To the group. Um. Well. Well, Lexi welcomed me. <laughs> and then, um, um, it needs a little bit different. So, um, yeah, I find more stability in AA. Um, but I was welcomed, and um, I mean, they told me to come back and just take it a day at a time, which honestly, that's really been the only thing that, because my mind goes so many miles ahead of myself, like, I, I just get stuck in um, my thoughts. So, taking it one day at a time is really like the best advice I've ever been given even though I've been given it before <laughs> yeah but uh <laughs> um yeah I don't know one day at a time that's that's thank you that's it thank, thank you, you. Yeah. <laughs> um I did <laughs> um I don't know what to do okay let's um Welcome our speaker tonight, Lexi. There's nothing like putting the deer in the headlights. So. <laughs> I, I think I'm just sadistic and I love doing that to new people. It's okay. Yeah, we're just going to go to a meeting. Oh, wait, wait. You're, you're going to lead the meeting. It's always great. Um, my name is Lexi. I'm an alcoholic. And um, before I forget, but most important is to thank Les for inviting me to come share. Um, yeah, he's heard me before and still wanted me to come back. That's quite inspirational. Because um, uh, there was a lot of not being invited back places, and I'm sure most of you know what that's like. Um, but I'm going to try to uh, tell you a little bit about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Um, but the most important things are the fact that I have a sobriety date, and that's November 22nd of 1976. I have a sponsor, her name is Marianne Sutton, and uh, she's an amazing member of Alcoholics Anonymous and practices these principles outside the rooms. And I need that stability in my life. Um, and then I have a home group. Ironically, uh, one of my brothers, Steve, is here tonight and he lives here locally. And. Um, Luckily enough, during COVID, there were positive things that came from that, believe it or not. And one of them is my home group, which I would not have found if it wasn't for the fact that uh, a gal that I got sober with, um, who has two weeks more than me, called me one evening and said, hey, um, I'm really having trouble with the fact that I can't go to regular meetings because of COVID because I have, she has acute asthma and needed to figure out a way to be able to work this thing and stay connected to Alcoholics Anonymous 
even though with COVID, a lot of AA groups were just shut down completely. And of course, you know, I've got this essence of having to be cool, because, you know, I'm cool. And um, that, that's a great cover up for fear, which is my underlying problem. Um, so needless to say, when she calls me and she's telling me about this, you know, I'm going with that analytical, I know better type attitude and um, we're on the phone and she can hear my trepidation. She can hear my fear. Um, and she lets me, you know, ring out to her the reasons why I thought it was just a bunch of malarkey. Um, and she patiently waits until I get done giving her my rationalizations. And she says, you know, Lex, we got a gal that's 91 years old that learned how to uh, get into Zoom into a meeting with a magnifying glass. And I got real quiet because she, she basically pulled my covers and made it okay for me to go, okay, um, maybe I can figure this thing out. And <coughs> that was March 15th, the year COVID was diagnosed. And uh, I have been a member of that group ever since. Um, it was supposed to just start off as once a week and now it's become every day at 9 a.m. And uh, if you're ever interested, I'll give you the ID and the password because that meeting is still thriving today, uh, despite regular AA meetings opening up again. And I try to go at least once or twice a week. On Sundays, I have uh, some of the girls over that I'm lucky enough to sponsor. And on Sundays, it's actually a speaker's meeting. And um, we sit together and do the hour meeting. And then afterwards, we're either sharing about something that uh, we're going through or we get the 12 and 12 out and we're studying the 12 traditions specifically out of that book. And it's been really fruitful. And in fact, uh, if she doesn't mind me mentioning last, last Sunday, we were able to do Rachel's third step with her. And um, I believe that Alcoholics Anonymous hasn't just given me a way to live my life better and more completely. But I will primarily tell you that in the last eight years of my life, it has been dynamic in the changes that have taken place in my life. Because for some reason, I became much more honest about my motives and the things that I was putting myself in, the situations that I was willing to justify and rationalize, even in sobriety. So um, with that, I'll get into that a little bit. But I want you to know that um, I'm a product of the thriving metropolis of Belinda, California. Um, I, let me tell you. Um, I was born at St. Joseph's in Burbank. I'm an eighth generation Californian. I'm the real deal. And um, we moved to uh, La Puente at the time, Belinda, when I was four years old. And uh, I grew up in this area. This is where I did my shenanigans. This is where I got into the real troubles that were to come. However, I want you to hopefully understand what I can appreciate with the disease of alcoholism. Because I firmly believe it's a family disease. For anybody that says otherwise, I think that maybe they have yet to learn what it's like to be the loved one of a practicing alcoholic or addict and what can happen in the home. And I had all of the evidence and the dynamics right in my home of what can happen as a result of alcoholism. 
Um, my mom was lucky enough to die with 28 years of sobriety uh, on, uh, I think, October 22nd of 2000. Um, and she was the one to plant the seed for me, too. I can tell you that I swore off alcohol at seven years old before I ever picked up. I told my dad that I would never touch alcohol, and I detested it. Um, instead of some of the healthy stuff that most families do, um, instead of Easter Sunday egg hunting, we did bottle hunting. Um, and I had this thing of being set that I was going to impress my dad and become acceptable by him by finding the bottle. And that was a big deal for me. Um, I was raised in a specific religion. Um, to this day, I don't like plaid. Some of you may understand that. Um, I, uh, I went to St. Christopher's right over on Vincent in West Covina when I was in junior high school. And then uh, after I got done with that, I was to go on to what I believe was the stoner populace of West Covina at Edgewood High School. And um, let me tell you, there wasn't a day that went by that I wasn't under the influence in some capacity from the time I started at that high school until the day I was kicked out, which if you knew what Edgewood High School was like in the 70s, you really have to work hard at that. And uh, for some reason, they didn't want me on campus, which I just could not understand. But needless to say, let me tell you um, just briefly, I drank alcohol for the purpose of getting drunk for the first time when I was 11 years old. I was at the El Monte horse auction behind the old Angel's Hardware off of Gary. And that's where I started as far as drinking it for the purpose of getting drunk. And I was with a bunch of people who liked to do it the way I did. Most of them were between five and 10 years older than me. And I idolized them. And I wanted to be a part of what they had going. And they just seemed to have a lot more fun than I did. I had a problem fitting in and being a part of from my earliest recollection. And I don't know where that came from, but I can tell you from my, fir my first memories the biggest thing I was concerned about is that the rest of you had figured me out and that you were gonna call me out on it because I just felt like I never fit in. I felt like life was way ahead of me and that the rest of you got that manual, whatever it is, it tells you how to do life and I wasn't in line and I didn't get it and I didn't know what the right thing to do was. Um, ironically, my career is not real long, obviously. Um, although I got a massive head of gray hair um, I got sober at 15, and um, this was this was the biggest eye-opener for me of anything that could possibly make life better. I hung out with some people when I was in junior high and high school that appeared to have the perfect families. And uh, there was one particular family that I was really, really close with. And uh, we did things together. We went to a little side group called Alateen together. Um, and I absolutely loved these people. And ironically, in sobriety, the father ended up being like my AA dad. And um, I was really, really close with him. And his name was Don Babb. And um, he just meant the world to me because he was kind to me. 
And because in sobriety, he was the first person I really recollect that had that laugh, you know, that laugh, and, and didn't take himself too seriously. And he would talk about this when he would speak at meetings. And I just, I adored he and, and who was to become his ex-wife. And to this day, I still communicate with her. But needless to say, um, I'm 15 years old and I'm having trouble. And here's some of the things that were my experience. They don't have to be yours. And I'm glad that when we read the big book, there are several different, different, uh, different definitions of what people go through before they get here. Mine was blackout drinking. I did that the first night that I got drunk. I thought it was a side, almost like uh, going on one of the e-rides at Disneyland, you know? Um, it seemed like just part of the gig. I didn't know that that was part of alcoholism. I don't think I had that conception or idea at that time. But when I was told what I did several years later on that first night, I had no concept of what I could do under the influence of alcohol until somebody told me. Um, but with that, these are the things that I'll tell you that were consistent. I would find out where, when, and how I could get more alcohol, and I had an adrenaline rush anticipating and waiting for that to happen. I stole alcohol out of your cupboards. I, uh, I hung out with people that had access to it, um, and I drank on every possible occasion that I could because the relief that I had from what I felt like when I didn't have alcohol in my system was everything I wanted it to be and it was everything that I lived for. The rest of it was just side stuff. It really didn't matter. And um, my mom had gotten sober in the La Puente Center the year I started drinking. And so I didn't like her much and I really didn't like her friends. And um, she'd take me to Lark Ellen, if any of you are familiar. Lark Ellen, Saturday night speakers meeting. And you know, I thought, I'd, and now I'm almost the picture of it. I thought, you know, people with uh, white hair, white belts, white shoes, or a drag, you know. Um, and um, she was surrounded by them. And she loved playing AA tapes in our car when we would go places. And she had a cassette player next to her bed. And I didn't share this for a long time, but there just seems to be something strange about this behavior, and I'll share it with you. I, I hated school. I hated everything about it until I went to Edgewood and I found out I could get loaded every day. And then I had perfect attendance. But when I was still at St. Christopher's, you know, one year in particular, I had 56 sex, uh, sick days. I remember seeing that on one of my report cards. I just hated the place. And, uh, the people just, I didn't identify with them. But needless to say, I remember on one of these occasions, I'm staying home sick, my mom at the time was manager of San Gabriel Central Office right here in West Covina. And uh, so she went to work and on one particular day, and I still can't tell you why, I'm in her bedroom and the cassette player is sitting there and I'm probably about 13, 14 years old and she's got all these AA speaker tapes sitting there. And I pop in this tape, and all of a sudden this guy is saying, hi, my name is Norm and I'm an alcoholic. And I was introduced to Norm Alpe before I ever got sober. 
And I remember sitting there in that bedroom listening to this tape. No 13 or 14 year old sits and listens to an AA tape for no apparent reason. And I mean, I could have been watching TV, I could have been doing anything, but I will never forget long before I met him, and I, I had the privilege and honor of meeting him in sobriety, but before I met him, I remember him talking about taking his 14-year-old daughter sober to buy her first pair of high heels. And I have never forgotten that. And he talked about walking on the sunny side of the street. I had no idea of what that could possibly be in anybody's life. But for some reason, I remember those things from that tape that I heard all those years ago. And it stuck with me. And um, I loved his idea of what sobriety was for him. And it meant something to me. Needless to say, I'm getting in trouble. I'm getting kicked out of high school. I'm uh, desperately needing to be drunk, <laughs> desperately, because I hate living in this skin. And there were some things that happened um, before I started drinking that had an impact. However, I want you to know, and I mean this, they are not the reason why I'm an alcoholic. But at, year, at eight years old, I, I found my first love. Um, actually about seven, but needless to say, I had found my first love in my life and my fantasy. And that was uh, some guy had moved into the house across from ours and he had quarter horses. And from my earliest recollection, my big fantasy was to ride and to have horses in my life. And I, I remember I was walking home from school one day and um, I would go up to the fence and I would pick the long grass up and I would feed the horses through the fence. And I fell in love with them. And on one particular day, I didn't see the person come out of the side view, but this old man walked up and he said, do you want to come over and pet him? And I thought I had died and gone to heaven. And I couldn't get home quick enough to change my clothes to be able to go over there and pet these big, massive, beautiful animals. And uh, he offered me the opportunity to ride. And I did. I thought God has answered every prayer I've ever had right now. And I thought I would never look back. But there was a price tag. And on one particular day, I can't tell you when, but I had been going over there for a while. And on this particular day, he said, now we need to clean up. And we went inside his single wide trailer. And I went to use the bathroom. And the next thing you know, he's opening the bathroom door. And because he is in my idea, and I had been told, he said, you know, you can call me grandpa, I'm grandpa. And I said, okay. So I called him grandpa. And things began to happen to me that shouldn't happen to any little girl or little boy. And for four years of my life, that was a continued part of what happened for me. So all of those innocent things that little girls and boys are supposed to anticipate, you know, their first kiss, their first date, going to prom, all of those things, the innocence of discovering relationships was dead gone because by the time I was eight, nine years old, I was told exactly what my purpose was and what I would do to survive out on the streets. And I believed him. So when it came to drinking, that was also something that could make me feel better because inside I felt shameful, embarrassed, rotten, and I knew everybody knew my secrets, everybody. So it was really, really scary for me and um, that made it possible for me not to have to feel those things. 
because I could drink and it would all go away and I wouldn't have to worry about it ever being a part of me. And needless to say, what happened for me is simple. You know, I would act like you acted. I would do the things you did. You know, I've already told you where I grew up. My dad is Hispanic, my mom's a white girl. And I had this really strong Latino accent, accent and the only thing I know how to say, you know, is uno momento and a couple other things. I do not speak Spanish, but I had this really hips looking cool accent, like I was some tough chick. And um, I would portray this. And then I had the other girlfriends on the West Covina side that were, you know, like surfer babes, and I would try to fit in there too. So I was really confused and didn't know who the heck I was. And uh, needless to say, I, um, I end up getting out on the streets and I've run away from home because I've gotten in trouble. And I end up over at my sister's house and I'm ripping her off because she has marijuana and she's got alcohol and other things that make me feel better. You know, a side note, I can tell you it's not a good idea to sit alone in your sister's living room, babysitting her kids, smoking pot and watching Psycho. This is not a good combination. <laughs> uh, those are the kind of things I did and they had such an impact on me. You know, I mean, it was terrible, and I was extremely uncomfortable with these things, but needless to say, I'm drinking or doing something else to affect me from the neck up on a daily basis. So uh, I've run away from home, I come home and I get confronted. And my, oh, and I forgot to tell you, my, my mom had the audacity to open a boys recovery house in our home while I'm drinking, while I'm trying to have a good time. I have these young people surrounding me that are trying to get this thing in Alcoholics Anonymous. Can you imagine how miserable I was? I mean, I was not happy. I didn't like it at home. You know, they would be sitting around our kitchen table talking about the joys of sobriety, and I just wanted to puke. I thought, this is just not my idea of a good time. But anyway, I had come home after running away, and when I got home, I got confronted, and the question was presented to me. You know, Lexi, do you think part of your problem might be the alcohol? And I thought I had done a really good job of covering it up. I really did. And I went into my mom's bedroom and she had graduated from the first class, the first CAC class in the state of California for drug and alcohol counseling. And this is the dynamic and this is one of the reasons why I talk about the family disease. My mom is a drug and alcohol counselor I walk into her bedroom, I tell her that I think I might have a problem with alcohol, and her response is, no honey, maybe you're just on a dry drunk. Now where do you get that concept? Where, where does that come from? And today I know, having raised two daughters, one is 34, the other one is 39, that that comes from that desire in all of us that hopefully our children will never have the problems we do. You know, I, I wouldn't wish this on any kid. I don't think it's a solution to any life problems. But Alcoholics Anonymous has given me everything I need to live a successful life. It may not be picture perfect in some people's eyes, but I'm gonna tell you what, I live a life like Norm Alpey said, beyond my wildest dreams. And I mean that sincerely, because these are the things that happen. My mom called my godparents who lived up in Northern California and God conveniently made it possible for them not to have room in their house. So she called the recovery house out in Desert Hot Springs on Dillon Road. If any of you have been out 
This is not a resort community, okay? <laughs> it's across the tracks from Palm Springs, and it is nothing luxurious. However, she called Ann Hardy and said, do you take kids that just have emotional problems? After I have told her that I think I've got a problem with alcohol. And Ann says, bring her to me. So I go out to this place, having no idea what I'm going into. And my vision was a lot like some of these luxurious rehabs that we hear about and see about on TV today. <laughs> but what it was, was this tan, yellowish colored stucco house out in the middle of nowhere on 10 acres with a couple of big Great Danes and 22 sober alcoholic addict kids. And I'm right in the middle of this. And I think I have joined the nightmare. I don't know what's gonna happen next, but I will tell you, and I believe this to my heart of hearts, and I've seen it and heard it happen. For anybody that has found it necessary to drink on their way to rehab, I totally understand how you feel, because if I could have been drunk that day, I'm telling you, I would have. But needless to say, I went for a weekend resort stay, and I ended up staying in that house for seven months, and I ended up coming out with a lot of knowledge of Alcoholics Anonymous. However, and this is what I wanna push home when I talk about sobriety. I had a lot of head knowledge, but just like our big book talks about in the area where it discusses the fourth step, I was willing to practice and hold on to some of the worst items in stock. And there are certain things that I found it necessary to hang on to until just about eight years ago. And I am not an authority on Alcoholics Anonymous in any way. However, I will tell you that my fourth column took quite a bit of time to get frank and honest about as far as my part. And one of the things that I did, which seems to be common, they talk about the fact that the biggest problems in sobriety are sometimes romance or finance. I'm the queen of romance, let me tell you. And I can tell you I could spot a red flag 300 feet away and I would cling to it like a frickin' magnet. Um, and I just had no conception about knowing who I was. So I go through sobriety and I'm really involved and I want you to know that I was really involved in Alcoholics Anonymous at times, but then I would meet him. And a prerequisite, I think, if you're on probation or parole, I'm attracted to you. And I need, <laughs> both of my, both of my daughters, their fathers. Yeah, well, here's the hope. It can change, all right? You can, you can experience enough pain where you're willing to get honest and frank and do things with a better light. There is hope in Alcoholics Anonymous, but needless to say, both of my daughters or fathers are addicts and neither one of them ever got sober and one of them just died about four years ago behind his, his drinking and using. But I have two beautiful, beautiful daughters and I am so grateful for that because they are dynamic women and very independent and very good in their lives, thank God. Um, but with that said, about eight years ago, I had sold, I had, I had a house up in Apple Valley and I had six horses in my backyard and I had a really nice trailer and a really bitchin' truck and uh, was living what I thought was the life. And I had been married 
to this guy who was a parolee. Um, and we did the dance, the on again, off again. We would break up for months. Maybe I would date somebody else and then I'd end up back with him. So I thought <laughs> behind fear that I just hadn't tried hard enough. So I sold everything. I sold my house, I sold my trailer, I gave away my horses and they were prize paint, quarter horse, mares, beautiful horses, gave them away, got rid of my truck and told him over the phone, I'm ready to try harder. <laughs> and of course he was in. I got a pretty decent paycheck. I've got a retirement. I've got other things. And so I, I move over to Morongo Valley and uh, I've gotten really sick physically and I required a hysterectomy and uh, I had to do some things and I was in with both feet and I'm going to these beautiful women's AA meetings at the Fellowship Hall in Palm Desert which was about a 40 minute drive from my house but it was worth it so I'm dealing with this guy that is actively drinking in our home and bringing home all the boys you know, and most of them knew what spread was. If you know what spread is, you know what I'm talking about. Um, they were just really, really involved in Aryan Brothers and some other nasty stuff. And here I am working in law enforcement <laughs> with this ex-husband at this point, living a life that is just a total lie. And I'm going to these meetings and I'm surrounded by these women that love me unconditionally that love me no matter what. And I am dying inside. I'm coming to meetings, I've got the smile on, I can talk the jargon, but I'm telling you right now, I was broken. And I remember I left one of those women's meetings on one particular day and I'm driving home and the hole in my gut is huge. And I'm not thinking about drinking and I'm not thinking about putting a needle in my arm or smoking a joint or anything else. I'm thinking realistically that suicide is a good option and I am dead inside and I'm driving home and I'm on Indian coming up towards Highway 62 and I think there's only two options here and how can I do this and I was home alone a lot by myself for days because the ex-husband would be off doing whatever made him feel good and um, no one will find me for days. And this was an honest thought at the time. And I remember in that moment, not, I, don't, I don't even want to call it sobriety. I was just dry. And I'm like, God, you've got to help me, man. You've got to help me. And all of a sudden, this is no lie. I can almost tell you, I had passed Dylan, and I was going up to the next signal light. And in that moment, the thought occurred to me, that's right out of our big book. You know, no human power could have relieved our alcoholism and God couldn't would have sought. Because the biggest thing that I was having trouble with and I was unwilling to get honest about is that I was still depending on people, places, and things to make me feel good inside. And all of that was falling to the wayside. And what I believe today is, is that my higher power was making it possible for me to get real serious about this thing and enjoy sobriety like I've never known. And so I called my sponsor and I told her the gig is up. I need to get some help. I went for some outside help because I really needed it. 
And I remember going to the first session with this guy who was in the program, and he wasn't just some fly-by-night. He had a PhD and he knew his stuff. And he sat me down and his first question was, you know, is he gonna be willing to come? And I said, this isn't about him, this is about me. I need help. And then he gave me some homework that night. <clears throat> that was probably the biggest homework I've ever been given in sobriety. Because it's a contradiction in my mind of what it tells me in the big book. But the two work together really well when you're healthy. He says, you gotta learn how to say, what about me? And he was asking me to climb Kilimanjaro. Because I thought, there is no way on God's green earth I will know how to do that. And I was scared because for me to say those words means that in my mind, I'm being selfish, dishonest, self-seeking again. And he said, that's really not what it's about, Lexi. And so I went and I uh, started doing some stuff and uh, something happened that particular day. The ex-husband came home and there was a question I had been wanting to ask him that I wasn't willing to ask for about five years. And we sat on the front porch and he asked me, how'd your thing go? And I said, well, um, honestly, he told me I'd probably end up living by myself or maybe a female roommate. And his response was, wow, I'm really sorry to hear that. And so I pulled my chair up in front of him and I said, I've got a question for you. I says, and think about it really hard before you answer. And I was shaking in my boots because I knew what the answer was, but I became willing to ask the question. And he looked at me and I said, what's my mom's name? And he didn't know it. And I had been with him for 12 years on and off. And I knew in that moment that I just needed to continue to work on me and wish him the very best. And it was about nine months later, it was Super Bowl weekend and things were getting bad that I announced, I'm gonna be leaving. And I took that chance and I left that household and I went without much of anything and I was willing to leave it all behind to let God really start running my life and help me in this thing called sobriety. And as soon as I made that decision, and any of you who have experienced this will know exactly what I'm talking about. The minute I made that decision, the minute I announced it to my sponsor, the minute it wasn't about running away, but it was starting to walk towards a new life, doors began to open like I can't even begin to tell you. I had gone to work one day. I didn't tell anybody at work what was going on in my life. I'm sitting outside. At that time, I was still smoking on and off. I'm smoking a cigarette and this gal comes out and sits in front of me that I don't have much of a relationship with, but I've worked with her for probably 17 years. And she's sitting there and just all of a sudden announces to me, you know, if you ever need a place to go, <laughs> I hadn't told anybody. You know what I'm talking about, Jerry. I hadn't said squat to anybody because it wasn't about this. It was about, okay, I'm gonna take the next indicated step. I'm gonna do what the big book tells me to. I am gonna be honest about who I am and where I am and what's going on and I'm gonna do this and I changed my prayers. You know how we, you know, people will ask you, maybe you've got friends on Facebook, they'll say, my, my husband is about to have surgery, please pray for him. And what I learned was my prayer should not be with an expectation of the outcome. And that they changed. And my prayers today are so simple. And my prayer every morning consists of this. God, please help me keep the blinders off so I can keep, keep, 
so I can see your gifts as they come to me. Whether they're in pretty or ugly wrapping paper. Because my perception of what is good for me is tilted. It's distorted. And some of the best things that have happened in my life at the time seem like, what, what the heck is this about? You know, what are you doing now? What's going on now? And my judgment calls have always been distorted. So with that said, you know, I started praying that. So this gal, you know, I, I said, why, why are you offering me a place to go? She goes, well, I'm gonna be real honest with you. She says, you know, I've known you forever. She goes, and quite frankly, I always thought you were quite a bitch. She goes, but <laughs> I'm thinking, boy, that's, that's a good lead in. Um, she said, but you gotta be one of the best emergency dispatchers I've ever seen. She goes, but something's happened to you in the last couple of years and you've lost your spirit. And I don't know what's going on in your life, but if you ever need somebody, let me know. And to this day, she and I are so close and she gave me a place to go when I needed it. And then from there, other things started to happen. My daughter has a, a couple of grandbaby boys and my other daughter, you know, I now have five grandchildren. My, my youngest daughter gave birth to twins last February. They're almost a year old. And I have these gorgeous grandchildren in my life. Um, and I, I feel so privileged because I've been doing the things that my sponsor told me to. You know, it's not about my daughters hugging and loving on me. It's about me being the best mom I possibly can and being the best grandma that I possibly can today. And I've learned how to do those things. Things that work got interesting, they got good, they got different. Um, I have been in emergency communications dispatching and law enforcement for 33 years now. And um, I was able to go back to that job with a different attitude. And when I go into work today, I do exactly what it talks about. Please allow me to be of maximum service to you and my fellows. And these adversity things that have happened in my life that I finally got honest about my part, because I redid that inventory. I did it specifically on relationships. I changed my attitude. I was abstinent and alone for seven years. And check it out, I liked it. Wow. I liked it. I wake up and I put my feet on the ground today and I'm not anticipating the dread of, oh my gosh, what if this comes, what if that comes? It's all about, wow, I woke up and this wasn't attacking me, <laughs> telling me all the dialogues. We were talking about it on the way here. I don't have to worry about going over all those dialogues that I used to anticipate and dread because I had unfinished business with a lot of people. And I'm happy to say that I don't have that problem. You know, the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous I have redone with a new vigor and a new happiness. And I get to share that with the girls that I sponsor because it's not about, oh my God, let's dread what you're gonna bring up. It's more about what are you gonna be able to let go of so that the good stuff can come in. And I am a firm believer in that today. And it took me a long time to get there but my spirit is whole. And I am, to the best of my knowledge, a good standing member of Alcoholics Anonymous today. And I love the women who come in. You know, Rachel was sharing with you about asking me to speak her, and yes, I did go up and greet her. 
Um, I just fell in love with this kid the minute I met her. And, uh, you know, Joy, who came with us today, you know, um, I love doing road trips. If you aren't doing road trips in sobriety, you are missing out. And I mean that. Uh, the conversations, I mean, we went everywhere from a little bit of talk about, uh, you know, sobriety to talking about NASCAR drivers. And forgive me, Joy, but I can't stand NASCAR. Um, I, I like to sit, they got the TVs on at work, and I'll say, oh, an another left turn, you know. It's just not my gig. I can watch Formula One and just get higher than a kite watching that. So. You know, everybody's got their flavor, but needless to say, I, uh, we're talking about NASCAR drivers and, you know, hitting all kinds of different topics on the way down here. Talking about, you know, taking a couple of gals to a huge meeting in Los Angeles called Pacific Group, and they had never been exposed to that kind of sobriety before. And it, their mouths were gaping open, you know, and I said, this is the ticket. This is what it's about. And then, lucky enough to have people like Les, who I love, and I do, I love you to death, being willing to drive the opposite direction all the way up to Apple Valley, which is five miles past any type of willingness to stay sober, and having them, having them willing to come up and share with a speaker's meeting that I am lucky enough to get the speaker chair for. And I get to bring sobriety from all over Southern California up to the high desert so that maybe somebody can see how other people do it successfully. And I love that, that commitment. It really does make me feel good. But moreover is the idea that I get to come down to Glendora my second time because the first time I missed. And I can tell you about that. It's really interesting. I wrote, you're going to love this. I looked at my calendar, and in the month of December, I was supposed to come and speak to you guys. And what I've got in there is potluck. It doesn't say where. It doesn't say why. It's just a Friday night, and it says potluck on it, okay? And then Les, unfortunately, has the wrong area code for my phone number. So between the two of us, we were dynamic, you know what I'm saying? Because he finally gets a hold of me, and he says, what happened? I says, what, what, what was I supposed to do? Oh my God, I missed something. And so we rearranged it and I am here with you tonight as a result of that. I believe for less, let's go into any lengths because I am not a circuit speaker, but you know, here I am and I showed up as you asked me to. And the thing is, is that we're gonna get in the car, we're gonna leave this evening, we're gonna drive back up that hill and it's a Friday night, so be praying for us. <laughs> Just, the Las Vegas traffic is insane. It's like the 91 freeway on any night of the week. But needless to say, we will be doing that and we will be enjoying the conversation. And I don't know where we're gonna end up eating because we're gonna get something after the meeting. Um, but I feel better for having been here. I don't know if this is gonna help any one of you with your recovery. If nothing else, I can tell you what not to do. How's that? Um, but some of the things that I know today and I am earnest about, and I say this a lot, but I mean it with everything in me, sponsorship is as good as what you give them. It's not a matter of ESP. They can't read your mind. They can look at what you're doing, and sometimes that's quite entertaining, let me tell you. Um, but it's what I tell Mary Ann that helps her be able to sponsor me and be there for me. 
And I heard this from a gal, and I know she was from Los Angeles, and forgive me, I can't tell you to this day what the gal's name was. But she said something in a speaker's meeting one night, and I've never forgot it. And what a novel idea. She said, I'm current with my sponsor. Isn't that, you like that concept, Jerry? That's a good one, isn't it? <laughs> For me today, that is of the utmost, whoa, sorry. That is of the utmost importance for me to hang on to this thing and not just like with the cat with the, the claws in it, but I get to hold recovery in both hands with such a feeling of joy. I didn't know that was possible. I would have moments and times of feeling pretty good about sobriety, but now I consistently have a calmness in my heart that I never experienced before. And I love it. And I will do the things that are in front of me to hang on to it. I want to share one other thing before I sit down. And um, I go to a big book studies on Monday nights. And I don't know about you guys, but it is fascinating how those gremlins get into that book and rewrite it all the time. I will pick it up and I will read a chapter that I have read. I can't tell you how many times. And I will swear to God somebody went in and rewrote it because I will find something new that applies to my life today. And that is constant. This last week, we read A Vision for You. And I loved reading it again, because what I saw in that chapter is something I know I've seen before. And of course, we always read that last page. Page 164 gets read a lot in closing meetings. But check it out. Try reading the pages before that. Because what I found and what I fell in love with on Monday night is the hopes and dreams of the first 100 alcoholics and what they hoped Alcoholics Anonymous would remain and grow. They didn't just talk about it staying one way. They anticipated the fact that it would grow. And I loved reading it because it was amazing. And I thought about World War II. And I thought about these sober alcoholics having to go off, and we were talking about it on the way here. These sober alcoholic men and women that had to go up, go off over to Europe and, and be in this war and were dependent on correspondence by writing, like we do with the fourth step, you know, communicating and writing what's going on with them and sending it off and not getting a letter for maybe two or three weeks or maybe longer with an answer to what their question would be and whether or not they were really in this for keeps. And I think we've got it so damn good. We were talking about the third edition. We were talking about the foreword. And if you read the last paragraph of the foreword, it talks about face-to-face -face or modem-to-modem. -modem. And that's what, that's what the Stay Connected group is for me, because it's a Zoom meeting. But I'm telling you what, on any given day, there will be a new gal or a new guy, or there will be somebody like my beautiful friend, Stephen, who's here tonight, that got sober during COVID on that meeting. And we're close today. And there are people that I've connected with that I've known for years in my sobriety, but we've reconnected because of that group. And they're in my life today. And I am so fortunate. You know, if you didn't hear something tonight that might be of use to you, that's okay. There's another meeting tomorrow night, and you can go and hopefully hear what you need to get this thing. 
But I'm going to repeat something that was said by Don Babb many times, and I've never forgot it. He talked about the fact that maybe this isn't the perfect place for you, but it's not a bad place to be on a Friday night. Not a bad place at all. And I believe in Alcoholics Anonymous for myself. And whatever it is that helps you get to your destination, I hope it's the right fit for you. But know this, and John Ackerlin used to say this every time he talked, and he was one of my heroes too. He says, understand, we only want the very best for you. That's all we want, nothing else. And with that, I want to thank Les again. I want to thank the girls for coming down with me. And it was great being able to be here tonight with you. Thank you for letting me share. I'm less alcoholic. Let's give Rachel and Lexi a hand for a great meeting. Give Greg a hand for the great cooking. Yes. We need a lot of help cleaning up. And uh, if, if you want to get involved in this meeting, we need a lot of help. So if you want a job or you want to get uh, something to do, just see me or Fernando after the meeting and, and we'll, give you, we'll get you involved. Uh, I'm your grapevine rep. Two years for 54 bucks. One year for 28.97. Meeting in a print. You know, you can give it to, give it, lay, lay one off in a doctor's office, take it to a recovery house, you know, the police station. <laughs> There's all kinds of crazy places you could put this thing, or one in your car so when you're stuck on stupid, you know, you could read a story, and you know, and it'll, the fog will lift. I mean, how can you beat that? Meeting in a print. I mean, listen, I gotta. It's what we do here. This one here is. It says, "Get into service." Now, when I first got here, they used to tell me, "Hey, kid, get in the car. Where are we going? Don't worry about it. Get in the car." And we go, we go to the hospital, sanitariums, road camps, and then to prison. Where are we going? Don't worry, get in the car. And, and being of service is the best thing, you know? If you're not in any kind of service, get involved because it, it gets me out of me in the eye, you know? And, and that's everything. I mean, uh, so what we do here is I'm going to give somebody this book and you read it. And then when you're done reading it, bring it back and we're going to recirculate it. So this one here says, get into service. It's a perfect thing to do, get into service. So who wants it? Come on, that's right. It's the same. You know what? All you got to do is follow directions. Read that big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and follow directions. All right, here we go. Thank you, sir. All right. Tina, come on up here. Let's, let's do this raffle. Come on. Thank you. Thank you so much for supporting our raffle each week. Yeah,